think that there's there's this avoidance of death anxiety, but at the same time, there's an avoidance of grief in general that just totally blockades the idea of our own death because people don't even think about or they stay angry. So they stay in that, that anger stage of grief for so long with breakups and for so long with death that I don't even think that they get to the point where they could start talking about mortality. I've been working a lot with people on forgiveness because, you know, not even for the, the spiritual aspect of it, but for just the letting go, the emotional aspect of it. They may sound like very different elements, but we got death, grief, resentments, and forgiveness all playing some kind of role together in avoiding this whole mortality thing. Hello and welcome to the Catacomb Social Club, where we explore new perspectives on life, death, dying, and the dead. Please like, share, and subscribe to support. You can learn much, much more about the show at catacombsocialclub.com. Now, welcome to episode number one. Today's guest is Ross Capocci. We'll be talking about relationships between mental health and death anxieties. Differences between healthy and unhealthy lifestyles, how the coronavirus and fear of this illness will change the world's mental health, as well as sobriety and so much more. Before we get started, I want to talk about catacombculture.com. This is where I sell my sculptures, my sculptures being functional home decor that I make out of hyper-realistic human bones. From human bone lamps to food-safe skull bowls, I make lots of memento more friendly pieces that serve as reminders that our lifespans are limited, so let's make the best out of the time that we have left. Explore my bone gallery at catacombculture.com. Also, restinggrounds.org. That will guide you through exploring alternative post-life care for your deceased body. Your deceased body has the potential to literally save lives, advance multiple fields of science, and so much more. Learn, learn more at restinggrounds.org. Now let's meet Ross and explore new perspectives on life, death, dying, and the dead. So today we're here with Ross Capocci. He's a mental health counselor as well as a certified drug and alcohol counselor. And today we're interested in talking about death and grief therapy. Welcome to the catacombs, Ross. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Good, good. Hanging in there. It's uh oh yeah, quite. It's uh it's interesting seeing the quarantine culture that has evolved through this whole pandemic here. Throughout the yeah. not only the United States but the entire world, it's just oh wow! All the all the memes. How about that? All the memes like everywhere. Toilet <laughs> oh. paper. Oh oh my god! Yeah, and we'll definitely get into that. The whole psychology of like why toilet paper above all else? Why is that? But uh, Ross, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Some of the things that uh, I didn't cover in the little intro there. Sure. So uh, as as you said, I'm a counselor. I've been working in the field for about three, three and a half years now. Um, got my start with drug and alcohol counseling, which didn't expect me to end up there, but I did. And I learned so much through that, so much about what people do that makes them unhealthy, but also what people need to do to be healthy. So mm. I guess my model of wellness came from that. Um, and now I work in a mental health setting. So I, I switched over from the drug and alcohol stuff to the mental health stuff, but there's so many similarities between the two. Oh, so. Interesting. So what are some like 
red, clear red flags of someone who's living an unhealthy lifestyle? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, I feel like not having a good support system is usually a start. Uh, a lot of how I view counseling is through our connections, right? So healthy people tend to have pretty good connections with, you know, themselves, other people, some kind of spiritual element, and unhealthy people typically don't have those things. Mm. So I, I think first off, connection is the biggest thing when it comes to a healthy person. Oh, well said. Yeah. What What are some good routines that you can suggest for individuals to consider? Sure. So that's something that in the drug alcohol world, they call it relapse prevention, the mental health world, healthy coping or self-care. And, you know, so the, the words are different, but it, it means the same. Um, I suggest building up a support system, so some kind of sense of community, uh, finding interest and following passions. Uh, sometimes overlooked are the physical elements, so having some form of exercise, yoga, something of that nature. And then the spiritual element that, from working with people, I was surprised to find out how few people had any kind of spiritual element in their life, or they kind of shunned it or pushed it away. So I'd say some kind of prayer or meditation is is crucial um, to to being healthy and finding some kind of greater meaning in, in all of this. Mm, mm. So when it comes to community, finding a community, where where should people maybe start or like what kind of community would people generally be looking for? I, I think the easiest way for people to start is simply by following what they love. That, that's what my philosophy is. Follow what you love and you're going to be all right. So if you like reading books, join a book club. If you're into religion or have any kind of uh, idea about that, walk into a church for the first time. A lot of places are very welcoming. You just have to show up. Um, I'd say if you love video games, you know, show up for a video game tournament. Like, just do something. Uh, or right now, online forums, Reddit, whatever it might be to just get the ball rolling on finding that community, pursue your interests, basically. Mm, mm. Yeah, I've noticed that too. It seems that um, people who are hopelessly, or at least seemingly hopelessly lost in cycles of addiction or um, you know, unhealthy lifestyles, it seems that the reason why they get lost in that, to my mind, is because they're, they're lacking a center point of their life. They, they don't have a, a central importance or priority that they mold their lives around. So they're just kind of going through all these different cycles and trying to find pleasure through all these different um, unhealthy ways. And um, I've seen a lot of people go through that darkness, and I've been through that darkness in my own way. And then eventually there seems to be a breakdown point where... Uh, there's like a total mental collapse and they pull back this gem, this diamond, the center point of their life, what they really love, what they really find important, and they just rebuild their lives around that. Um, I've been through it. I've seen a lot of people go through it. I'm sure you've probably seen people recover and go through something similar. So, um, Definitely. Yeah. I had a uh, supervisor talk about that exact sort of thing where he said everybody needs to have their garden. And 
sometimes it is as simple as that, finding that passion, because sobriety is not about living a boring life where you go to a meeting and talk to your sponsor and, you know, the monotony, because there's plenty of unhealthy people who are sober. Um, sobriety is far more about living happy and what what brings you happiness. So in the midst of all that, even early recovery, I'd be like, we got to give you a reason to be sober. You know, there's more to life. Exactly. Yeah, very well said. I mean, your wisdom is just, it's, it's shining. I mean, it's clear as day that you've seen a lot, you've learned a lot, and that, you know, I think you're doing a really good thing for a lot of people. So I appreciate it. So when it comes to community, it, Back when I first started uh, organizing meetups and stuff, I started realizing that it could be a little intimidating for first-time comers to, like, explore the meetup and come and just meet new people. Is there any advice that you can have that would, you know, inspire and motivate people to overcome that initial intimidation to really meet and find their good group? I think uh, two things. So one would be bring a friend. (laughs) <laughs> basically the only way that mm. people join anything is if a friend comes with them so we have all this marketing for events and i've tried to run events myself uh that you know throughout the years and coordinating events is next to impossible the only way i was able to get people was friendship so i, I think word of mouth and bringing people who are already comfortable with it um and then the other thing is uh not being afraid to fail so I've shown up at events before and different things where uh, maybe I had no, no, uh, not that I didn't have the interest. Maybe I had no place being there. Or I was brand new to the scene and I showed up and, you know, people would give me credit. Like, uh, example, uh, kind of silly, but um, there was an intramural kickball league going on and I decided I'm going to join. And when I was telling people at work, they were like, Ross, you joined that? Like, do you know anybody on the team? I'm like, no, I just joined. Like, what's the big deal? And I, I was terrible at it. But, <laughs> you know, I, I had fun. It, it didn't matter. And I, I still follow a couple of those people on Facebook, and they're good people. So it was a worthwhile experience. And uh, you just got to show up. Uh, pretty much all of success in life is just showing up. And mm. the rest is some perseverance and a little bit of luck. Yep, yep. So... To find a group based on your passions. Now, how does one recognize their passions? So the first word that came to mind when you asked that was discernment, which is a big fancy word for exploring uh, a decision in your life. So the first thing that I go to is uh, discernment is not just about thinking and feeling and maybe if you're spiritual, the praying about it, but you got to start doing something. So I think finding your passion starts with that first time that you go and do something. You know, that first time you pick up a video game controller, the first time that you show up to a dance or to a gym or to a church. That's what finding your passion is all about. It's all these baby steps along the way, not just this eureka moment waking up at 4 a.m. It might come that way, but typically not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've been through um, a lot of exploration, like, you know, obviously through my childhood and teen years, um, the the problem that I've found is like, I am interested in so many different things that it's hard to make time and energy for, for all those things. So it's, um, 
I guess it's finding the finding like a center point and a balance and making time for all these things. Um, yeah, but well, definitely. I, I want to jump in on that if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Um, I see that so often with with clients in particular. So they kind of do know what their passion is. The problem is they procrastinate and it's not because they don't want to do this thing. There's just so much to do or there's the kids and everything else. So I automatically go to, we need structure because if we could get you to do 10 minutes of that a day, you're going to be pursuing that passion rather than get lost in the whole, there's so much to do. Like I want to write a book. Now that's a couple year process. That's tons of work too overwhelming. Let's have you sit down and write for 10 minutes. You know, like that is far more reasonable and something that then we could follow that passion when we love 10 different things. Let's get narrowed down. Exactly. Yeah. And now is actually one of the best times in my life for getting caught up on projects. Despite the coronavirus, it's like, it's fantastic. I have all this free time. There's (laughs) no work. It's great. Honestly. (laughs) Usually uh, when I work with artists and uh, try and help them structure, you know, start like their business as like their art as a business, I usually start with a website and then social media and then blah, blah, blah. It's just so much to do. And yeah, lists definitely help. But another thing that uh, clients also face is the aspect of vulnerability where they're afraid to put out their art because they're afraid to be like negatively criticized. Uh, How do you suggest people to overcome their vulnerability and their their fears of that yeah uh that one's tough because i i I think that affects all of us and includes me on this one with the whole podcast i just started Mm. the podcast recently um sometimes it is about just gaining that confidence in themselves like give it that that one little chance sometimes making the vulnerability really visible because sometimes they don't even realize that that's what this is about. And uh, it, I don't know if you guys ever read Brene Brown or heard her on YouTube. She has a, a wonderful TED talk and she talks a lot about vulnerability and at the heart of vulnerability, vulnerability is necessary for connection. So mm-hmm. back to this connection thing, this fear is keeping people from pursuing things and a lot of issues come from, the isolation of not being vulnerable. So I think maybe trying to convince people that way too, um, you know, is a a good start. It doesn't mean people are going to take to it right away, but in time um, they may gain that more willingness to be vulnerable, especially if they could be vulnerable with me as the therapist first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I found that very important. Um, When I was a teenager, I had this this interest in in music. So at, at this one time in my life I was really interested in like diving into music and like um, you know producing putting out albums performing but I was very shy so um, that was like a huge obstacle like I had all these songs all these different um, lyrics and whatnot but I wasn't vulnerable enough I wasn't courageous enough to share them with the world openly raw as is so it was like this this cycle of breaking through that barrier of fear and just opening up to be vulnerable, going to these open mic nights alone or with friends and just putting myself out there as uncomfortable as it was. 
Um, and as terrifying as it was, it was um, a huge growing experience. I mean, I grew so much from that. I, I learned how to open up and I learned how to fail and be okay with it. Um, I didn't get booed off stage, but it, it was, uh, it's all part of the growth. It's like breaking through old barriers that we create in our, in our minds and in our lives. Yeah. I find, um, an experimental mindset usually helps and to alleviate any kind of expectations that the individual might have. And that allows for, um, yeah, just the, just do it mentality. You know? Exactly. Yeah, fake it till you make it. Yeah. <laughs> so you also mentioned exercise being part of the uh, imper- important circle. So how how do you think exercise helps? I would assume it like uh, enhances like kind of brain chemicals and activity and just overall health in general. Sure. You know, exercise releases endorphins just as drugs do. So you know that's always a good start, but people don't realize how stress doesn't just affect the mind, the brain, but usually it affects somewhere in our body. Some people, you know, they'll complain of stomach aches or I got a lump in my throat Mm -hmm. or shoulder tension, which is usually where I get the upper body. So I I think people understanding that stress also manifests itself in a physical way. They could become more mindful of that and then do things like exercise, massages, Mm -hmm. you know, chiropractor, whatever to try and alleviate that tension that they get. Mm. Are, what, what would you say the most common forms of exercise are? Maybe like yoga, weightlifting, or what do you think? Yeah, yeah, I would usually say something like that. Um, you know, sometimes Zumba, but a lot of people take to the yoga thing for the meditation aspect of it and the mindfulness aspect. So it seems to go hand in hand with the whole counseling field. Hmm. It's all very, like, very intimately connected. The body, the mind, the heart, the, the emotions. And it's, I've always tried to, like, pinpoint, well, is it because they're not exercising enough or taking care of their physical body? Or is it because, or speaking personally, or is it because I'm not mentally doing the right things? And then I found the center point of both. It's, it's all three. It's the mental, the physical, and the spiritual. And like balancing those three things, there's no like one, I, well, I haven't found one single um, area of solution. It's it's the mix of everything. So mm, mm. definitely, well, I agree with that too. Also, you mentioned uh, spirituality being one of the important aspects. Um, what kind of, like, what, what do you suggest as far as spirituality? Where should one begin to explore that? Well, with spirituality, I feel like there's a number of different avenues where meaning is is a big part of that. We try to search for meaning in all different ways, and typically it does come down to those big questions of what's life about and what comes after this. So usually spirituality is a good place to look for that. Um, I think connection is another one where, you know, is there some kind of core being that we could connect with? And for me, it's... It's a balance because as a counselor, I, I don't want to bias my clients. I don't give advice. So I'm not telling them you have to do this particular thing. So I'm balancing that kind of, uh, what's the word, kind of like third-party laid-back mm. position while at the same time faith is the most important thing in my life. 
So it, sometimes it's hard because I want to say like, listen, if you just believed, you would be fine. And, you know, I can't do that. It, it's mm-hmm. more so nudging them that, all right, if we're looking at a wellness circle and here's everything that pertains to wellness, well, let's have you start to look in this direction or let's have you start to see meaning and connection as more important aspects of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joshua, what have you... Um... What has your spirituality allowed you to explore and develop coping skills and stuff like that? Yeah, so, um, so having gone through different dark avenues, um, mentally, physically, spiritually, um, with various different worldly things that people tend to get lost in, you name it, I've probably been through it in some form. Um, and it's like, at some point, you just get so low. Well, I'm going to speak personally. At some point, I got so low um, and so far into this abyss of isolation and despair and chaos um, that there was a total breakdown of like all my um all the behavioral structures and thought structures and emotional structures it was like being in the center of a a black hole or like a void where there's nothing and then from that point um i realized my intimate connection to all and i slowly began to like rebuild my life the way I feel is right Um, and rebuilding it with a more clear and complete understanding of you know what I went through and how that relates to what others go through and how it plays into the whole of this divine play which I mean you know nature and God is really nature God that's like the overlying intelligence for this whole entire universe um, and we're just little mm, little facets of God little um, extensions experiencing and learning going through this whole thing so I just I, I learned and appreciated what I went through and I, I gained firsthand experience and I pulled that darkness up into the light to understand that and use it to relate to other people who are going through the same thing and kind of see the world in a, a more clear, unbiased kind of way mm. instead of uh, instead of um, looking at it through one specific lens. I try to I try to be open to all perspectives. Yeah, all perspectives and um, take everything into consideration. Like whenever, um, whenever I'm faced with a crisis in particular, I try to really take time, meditate, and um, try to connect with. I like to refer to it as my highest self, um, because I don't see us as separate from God. I see us um, all connected somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ross, what would you say people look for most when they start exploring their spirituality? Hmm. 
because personally, and I, I agree with Joshua here, where um, when, when I explore, like for me personally, it's more of like a Zen Buddhist tradition, and I explore yeah connection and then a deep introspection into clarity in in my own mind and stuff like that. So um, so maybe where what's your background in spirituality, and do you want to give us your perspective on what you've learned and felt and experienced? Sure. So uh, for me, I, I grew up uh, in the Catholic Church and school and all that. So for unfortunately, for a lot of people, they come out of Catholic school and say, uh, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and, and it's sad that that, that yeah, same. you know, yep. it has that impact on people, which is the opposite of what you want. Um, I think that it, for me at least, it created a kind of rigid, uh, moralistic kind of viewpoint where uh, it's not religion is not about that. I think religion and spirituality is all about connecting to something else or someone else. So then my faith developed, you know, kind of similar to what you were saying, Josh, where you know there were some dark times and I had to trust somebody or something and i started to trust god and that's where it all started so for me now i was able to develop that catholic identity and also non-denominational christian identity through initially that trust it all started with the relationship so connection um i really like there there's one bishop and he does a lot of youtube stuff and he was talking about how religion it's almost like watching a baseball game right so let's say you know you go to a baseball game for the first time and you're sitting in the stands and you've never even heard of this game you start seeing people run around and then you start asking questions okay what's this all about then somebody gets out and you're like how did they get out what's the rules so the rules only matter once you start to develop that relationship and develop that love for this thing it's not the other way around where it's like, oh, man, what's sin? Am I going to hell for this? Like, the obsession first is is what keeps people away from that deeper connection. So I, I'm happy and fortunate that I was able to develop that trust and that faith, and I could keep growing it, and then to be able to share it with other people, you know, that it starts with a relationship. Personally, yeah, spirituality has helped me for sure perceive the afterlife or lack thereof or whatever um and uh yeah has helped me cope with my own mortality and i've been finding that a lot of uh specifically here in the western world there it's almost like our culture um offers gives us all uh, this death denial where we almost reject our own mortality which for sure segues into a lot of uh, death anxieties and uh, holding ourselves back from potentially exploring things because we're afraid of either physically dying or socially dying, like our social identities. So, um, yeah, tell me about your experiences. Uh, do you encounter a lot of like death denial or death anxieties? Maybe see it as like the core reason for maybe all anxieties. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, I think it's kind of hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going into this whole interview, I, I was thinking about that probably for the last week. And naturally, the last, you know, maybe half of my sessions over the last few days have been grief-based. I'm um, talking about, you know, some kind of death or some kind of breakup. And so 
I think that there's there's this avoidance of death anxiety, but at the same time, there's an avoidance of grief in general that just totally blockades the idea of our own death because people don't even think about or they stay angry. So they stay in that, that anger stage of grief for so long with breakups and for so long with death that I don't even think that they get to the point where they could start talking about mortality. So that's where I've been working a lot with people on forgiveness because, you know, not even for the, the spiritual aspect of it, but for just the letting go, the emotional aspect of it. So, you know, we got these, they may sound like very different elements, but we got death, grief, resentments, and forgiveness all playing some kind of role together in avoiding this whole mortality thing. Yeah, well, well said. I mean, in my own life, I've found that to be true very true um i've lost friends loved ones um i've had breakups and it seems like when we when we love someone or something we kind of mentally or emotionally attach ourselves to that person or thing and we start to build our life with that thing or person and we build all these neural pathways and um, physical memories like muscle memories and spiritual connection with this person and then when that person or thing is no longer in our life it's it's like a piece of us dies and in a lot of ways um, we it, it's like a scar it's like a dead end in a neural pathway because our mind can't comprehend anything well we cannot see outside of this life most of us from their perspective but then through spirituality we i mean i've found that i can let go of my attachments and it's it's the easiest thing and the hardest thing to do because you have all those structures in place and you have to pull yourself out of all of that and just let go and release exactly like that's so well said um because even for me, like a lot of my experience, and I think that sometimes clients get this misunderstood. They'll say, oh, what you learned in school. Probably like 85 or 90% of everything I've learned is from other people in my own experience. You know, you learn the skill set and you learn the mindset in school. You don't learn life. Um, so to your point, I mean, I, I've had the same thing where I've had so much change. I, I talk about sometimes on my podcast where the last few months I've moved, I have a new relationship, and I have a new job all in the last three, four months on top of what's happening right now. Uh, we all, so grief is something lately I've been very familiar with, even though it's good stuff for the, you know, for the most part, uh, there's, there, there's a collective grief right now, I think, with this whole coronavirus. We're mm -hmm. grieving this past life and, you know, will we get it back? But if we do live that very present, mindful lifestyle of being unattached to things you know it makes it a little bit easier but it it's so hard so i know i said a lot there, oh, there yeah, there's yeah. a lot to unpack <laughs> yeah. um, so where would you say one should start with just the unclinging to letting accepting the impermanence of life that things change where should one start in just adopting that idea or even just exploring it just a little bit 
mindfulness. So mm-hmm. uh, we were both at TEDx Scranton, yeah. and somebody talks about mindfulness. It, it was you know perfect timing. Um, I think having a present focus, focusing on just today, and you know it doesn't really matter where you look. Meditation, it's all over. Um, as far as my faith and and probably your guys's faith and and spiritualities as well, that you know. It's literally in the Bible. Focus on today. There's enough evil in today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Um, if we stay in, in that kind of mindset, in that there's only so much that needs to be done in front of me, if I don't put all these extra expectations of myself, whether it's career or family or relationships, and simply do the next best thing. My spiritual director tells me constantly, do the next best thing. It, it makes life so much simpler. Yeah, yeah. So you said you're you're very passionate about sobriety. Tell us a little bit about what sobriety is for those that um, maybe don't know what it is, or those experiencing it, or or interested in getting it for themselves, or for those they love. Yeah. So I think sobriety is different for everybody. I don't know if there's so much a rule of thumb. The core thing is that, and it's ironic we're talking about not being attached. I think it's living life in in a way that we don't have attachments or addictive tendencies towards a thing. That you've heard the term dry drunk, and that I think that plays a role too. That yes, you don't have to be using a substance in order to like yeah you could be in recovery or you could be um you know not drinking not smoking not not watching porn whatever your addiction is but i think it comes down to living sober is more so than not being attached to that thing being able to let go and to not constantly crave that thing because that's not really sober that's you're getting there but you're not quite there yet Mm. um it's okay to be in that spot, though. I, I think it's okay to be in that place, especially because sometimes the urges and cravings are not even, you know, they're like thoughts and, and emotions. We can't always control that stuff. I think sober is more so how you react to it than, um, you know, instead of desiring it and wanting that back, like actually consciously wanting that back. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it seems like, um, it seems like in addiction, like through my analysis of it, um, it seems like the problem arises when we cling to something and constantly desire and sacrifice other things and lose our priorities for this whatever the addiction is to to cling to that and to constantly be in that cycle and create a life based around that it it seems like that's the point where it's damaging whereas um like for example someone who at a family or a social gathering has a drink and then like one drink and they're fine and then they could go a week without it and um so it seems like yeah that like you you just said it the problem is when you cling to something um but just to ask you um what's your definition of addiction um when substance use becomes damaging or detrimental what's the a clear definition to your mind yeah so I I'm gonna go to there there was a documentary it was called pleasure unwoven 
and basically the way they explained addiction was it's when in in our brains when we take the word survival you know that our need for survival is now replaced with the drug or the thing so if i think i need to survive instead of eating or drinking or connecting with somebody i'm going to alcohol i'm going to something else so like stress may trigger that a certain situation may trigger okay instead of going to what i should be going to in this this situation because i'm stressed i need something to survive i'm going to go to my substance uh, so it seems like it's it's linking the substance abuse to a very core instinctive survival mode that probably formed from some psychological trauma or fear or pain or barrier and then the the coping mechanism to survive that pain or fear is to numb or to distract and there's infinite distractions and infinite ways to numb i mean it doesn't have to be a drug or porn it could be something silly like anything really i, I think we addict to everything shopping food social media yeah 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 exactly (laughs) totally and and the important thing is because i I see a lot of people sometimes they'll use that argument as a defense whether you're dealing with that full-on addiction where like you said you take your entire lifestyle and then um revolve it around the substance or this this activity in your life even for, for those of us who aren't dealing with that, if every time we feel stressed out, our phone is out, or every time you know we're having a bad day, we're, we're going to our, our significant other for that kind of, you know, you gotta validate me, it's, that's the same thing. <laughs> you on. resonate with that, I can yeah, see absolutely. it. Awareness. you got to be aware of our vices. Yeah, yeah. Whew. Yeah, that was, a, that was heavy unpacked right there. Yeah, definitely re- resonated with me. I mean, even it's just like little like weird habits now, with, especially with social media. So it's like you're, you're standing in line at a checkout, you know, with groceries. Oh, just pull the phone out, you know. We're, we're almost like we're straying away from human connections. Like I remember growing up as a kid, I'd go to the grocery store with like my mom or something and like the person behind you would strike up a conversation the person in front of you would strike you know you'd talk to the cashier now it's just silence you know like we don't we we focus more on the virtual connection as opposed to the physical in-world connection i mean it's going to be yeah it's going to be interesting uh you know five years from now the kind of uh connections that we have or expect or you know look down upon uh, in the in the future so when it comes to sobriety uh just i just when i hear sobriety i'm like oh there's like 12-step programs or something in order to help individuals now do they those work and like what are they what can individuals you know expect from them sure so i i think a lot of it is kind of what we talked about living a healthy lifestyle and the 12 steps goes hand in hand anybody could pull out the 12 steps and, and live by that where okay you accept that you're powerless that there's something some kind of higher being in your life 
that you're sorry for what you've done to other people and you're not holding resentments against them and then you're at the end of it looking you know seeking to help other people through this process mm -hmm. and so sobriety in in that context isn't so scary as it is just accepting I'm, I'm a imperfect person and i'm i make mistakes and that that's okay um i, I think it's kind of stripping away this facade that we might have and and I think that leads to being more vulnerable and then actually connecting more to other people. Well said. It seems that that general theme is present in all aspects of addiction or um, negative habits where the, the first step is moving beyond the denial and the delusion that we've created and just seeing it clearly for what it is like oh i'm on my phone too much or oh i spend too much money at the mall or i eat too much junk food and it, it, that first step is accepting it and then making the change necessary yep exactly uh so as a therapist how do you perceive holistic uh, medicines that you know, they claim would, you know, cure addictions to like, say, heroin or, you know, serious hardcore drugs like that. What's your perception on holistic medicine? So I think holistic medicine needs to remain holistic. There's no single thing that's going to help. I, I, I despise when people will say like this, this approach that was not evidence based is somehow the most effective thing. Like petting a horse is not going to solve your heroin addiction. Uh, you know, like those sorts of things drive me crazy. So like a as much as I say it's about connection and all that, we still as therapists need to be informed. We, we do need to go with, there There are some stuff by the book that are working. And if they're working, we run with it. Um, MAT, um, medication assisted therapy, that that's going pretty well right now. Suboxone, methadone, things like that tend to help people who were heroin addicts. I mean, you got to think about it. Their uh, brain has been changed for such a long time by something so powerful. I would rather that person not die and have time to be able to process all of the stuff we're talking about right now, which is it would take years for anybody just to get started on all this, let alone to develop a healthy lifestyle. Try and do that with when you're probably still in your old environment with old people. I, I think you do need something like that. Being in a group, that's something that's, uh, you know, validated empirically. There's all these different therapies that, you know, seeing somebody who is well-trained, I think, is important. So, you know, while there are, there's a lot of good things out there, and I, I agree with it, you know, I think people should try, you know, going to a farm and, and you know, do stuff with horses, uh, have a dog, do Reiki, whatever it is, that that's cool. Um, but I think you have to do that also being well-informed and as a holistic approach. Don't depend on just one thing, e even things that we know work. Like you can't just, you know, depend on the 12 steps and think that's going to help you. Treatment is also important. You know, you can't just go into an MAT clinic and say, oh, uh, Suboxone is going to get me through this. Well, if you don't analyze what's going on underneath, you're probably going to end up in the same place in six months. Mm -hmm. so, There's more to it. Um, just just to uh, comment on something that you said. Um, so, yeah, the, the holistic treatment 
um, it's I agree with you completely. It's not there's no one single answer. It's it's about treating the whole. That's what I've found um, in my life uh, through through all types of situations, not just addiction. Um, really, that applies to all life. But um, you mentioned that the introspection is important. There's a there's an emphasis on introspection and the ability to change our behavioral patterns and our physical muscle memories and whatnot. Um, are you familiar with um, MAPS, M-A-P-S, or Multidisciplinary um, Association for Psychedelic Studies? It uh, basically like studying psychedelics or entheogens that have been used by tribes from all around the world um, in spiritual ceremonies in a, in a very conscious, um, positive, spiritual way to help someone heal or help someone rebuild their life. Um, are, you, are you familiar with any of that? Or, and do you have any thoughts on that? No. Um, yeah, I, that's kind of new to me, actually. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I explored it a little bit, uh, their website. I was checking them out. Yeah, it seems really interesting. They're, like, at the forefront of, you know, psychedelic treatments as far as, like, mushrooms, and I hear MDMA and all that kind of stuff. Just to allow, like, a intensive therapy that allows people to cope with whether it's, like, uh, post-traumatic uh, syndromes and stuff. Yeah, it's uh, very interested in hearing more about their work, without a doubt. Sure. Yeah. Like, just to jump in quick on that, like, um, I'm not sure if it, if anything's been, you know, researched as far as, as that goes. So I'd be curious to hear, too. Um, it sounds a lot like the whole thing with uh, marijuana right now, that marijuana for medical use, marijuana for recreational use, Um and just, you know, the, that, that whole debate's been pretty big. And when I worked in drug and alcohol, we were trying to figure out how are we going to approach this? Mm. You know, do we approach this as a medication? Do we approach this as a problem? Um, and so I think it's kind of looking at the whole lifestyle, seeing, okay, how does this fit with, with what you're doing? Is this something that's enabling you? And, you know, to call it medicine, is this actually helping? Or, you know, because it, it could legitimately be helping. Um, at other times, though, we can't do the research on, on marijuana right now because it's not legal. And in order to make it legal, we probably should have some research to back it up. So we're stuck in this kind of weird cycle here. Mm. Yeah, that's a fascinating point. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, all these new legalizations of, like, you know, what was known as a illegal drug drug but it's now being legalized like yeah uh, marijuana all across the united states here in pennsylvania it's um yeah if you have your medical marijuana card you just go to dispensary pick up whatever you want and you're good to go and uh as far as um psychedelics i'm pretty sure in i think it's denver colorado and oakland uh, california they are at the forefront of uh legalizing uh psilocybin mushrooms Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're totally legal, uh, I believe. So it's going to yeah. be interesting to hear the kind of research that comes out from those cities. Yeah. Oh, definitely. The way, the, the way I've kind of viewed this um, is in life we have ourselves and we have tools. So any drug 
is isn't inherently good or bad it's just a tool that changes something within us so i mean even something like morphine or heroin you know if you're if you're dealing with severe physical pain after a surgery or going into a surgery that has a time and place morphine fentanyl like if i was going into surgery i would <laughs> nah, there's a use for it but yep. the problem is like when when someone takes something and abuses it and um you know uses it maliciously and creates that cycle of addiction that we just talked about um even something like marijuana i mean it could help a lot of people in a lot of ways but then a lot of people can just smoke it all day long and do nothing in life so there's it goes back to the the holistic viewpoint and the the holistic treatment mm -hmm. it's the the entire view so, yeah. so we have to know ourselves mm. Would you say that you're afraid of any specific legalization of any drug in particularly? Because I hear um, some uh, some political parties, they're like, oh, yeah, just legalize all drugs. Because isn't there a country, I want to say, I want to say it's maybe South America, one of those South American countries legalized all drugs. And Portugal. Okay. And it's like, I wonder what kind of, you know, recoil they're having and if it's detrimental to society or, you know, the kind of social economics that are becoming of that situation. But uh, are, do you fear any kind of um, legalization of any heavy duty drugs in America or is that heavily regulated and never going to happen? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of wonder that, especially there's the whole marijuana thing and, and all the reasons why that's legal versus illegal. Um, you know, it, it's like if it makes money, we'll, we'll legalize it, sure. And I, I mean, I find that, that kind of scary just to do it on that basis. Mm. Um, you know, what are the point of the rules then? You know, if everything becomes legal, then, <laughs> you know, what what as a society do we say is okay? Like, do you know, just run in front of the street, you know, whenever you want, like cars, forget about it. Like, <laughs> like, where do we draw the line in our laws? Are they more about how do we make money or is it mm. more about how we protect our people and what drugs then, you know, if it's truly about the people, what drugs are we saying that we want and that we don't want in this whole thing? And, and some people would gladly take marijuana tomorrow and some people would actually say alcohol. I don't want that. I mean, we saw what it did 100 years ago, uh, making that illegal. I think people forget <laughs> that aspect of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, honestly, any hard drug, I, I see fears with that. Um, the marijuana thing, I, I'm kind of on the fence with because I know it helps some people. But I, I think for some people, they would also be living, like you said, Jeremy, that lifestyle where they're not doing anything. Um, mm. So at the end of the day, though, uh, are people going to do it anyway? Right. That's kind of where we're at. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. Um, I'd like to comment on Portugal and yeah. legalization. Um, yeah, so in Portugal, they legalized all drugs and they integrated uh, uh, drugs like um, on the same level that we could go out for a coffee here or a beer, or we used to be able to. Um, over there, 
that stigma is just dissolving away. So um, in Canada, I, I know in Canada, I'm not sure about Portugal, but in Canada, they actually have um, safe use clinics where addicts can go and they get clean equipment. You know, everything's sterilized. There's first aid kits there. There's trained medical professionals and there's all the resources for addiction treatment. You know, there's pamphlets and Basically, it's like a safe haven for them to use their drug safely in a supervised setting with a social support group that's there. And it's not pushy from what I hear, but it's it's basically saying, like, we know you're going to do it. Here's a safe place so you don't die. And here's people who actually care about you when you feel like you're ready to get help. And they've found that that approach works far better than the approach of constant punishment and ruining someone's life over doing something that's ruining their own life. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So in, so if someone's harming themselves, this is my view, if, if someone's doing something that harms themselves and isn't harming anyone else, just themselves, then I would want to help them and instead of like throwing them in jail and punishing them and making their life even worse. That that doesn't make sense to me. It's like the whole prison system, money making, like mm. you like you were talking about. Um, so I think the um, it's it's showing in like Canada and places where things are decriminalized, not legalized, but decriminalized, mm. where people aren't necessarily punished for it. Um, that's showing to be a much better approach. Addiction rates are dropping, um, relapses are dropping. I don't have the exact statistics, so. Uh, do your own research, but I've I've read a lot about it, and it's it's very good from what I read. Yeah, I think I saw on Facebook that uh, one just opened, I, th I believe, in Philadelphia, and there's a lot of controversy behind it. Yeah, exactly, because you you're either on the side of like let's help the people or like let's throw them in jail because that's illegal. So it's like a lot of controversy behind that. Uh, but it also reminds me almost like uh, rehab facilities. Uh, so, Ross, could you tell us, have you ever been to a, like a rehab facility just to explore it, to understand like what kind of services they provide to the people that attend? So I personally haven't been in one. I haven't worked in one or been there as a client, but I work in uh, outpatient mostly. But from working with clients, they'll explain to me, like, there's, there's plenty of group sessions throughout the day, a lot of structure. So that's that's probably the biggest thing that people could expect is the constant structure, the constant having people around them, either therapists or people who um, are in recovery themselves who will be talking about their experience with the whole thing. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing that I could say about inpatient. Hmm. Hmm. Nice. But yeah, to me, it seems as though um, the environment and habits are the most key factors as to what uh, allows individuals to continue their clinging, to continue their addictions. Uh, would you say, would you agree with that? Yeah, I'd say so. And it's almost like having a tree. And if we were to pick up the tree and put it in a whole new garden, and then after 30 days, we plopped it right back where it used to be. Mm. What's going to happen to the tree? It's probably going to start dying again. So it's also about getting some new soil in there and some new flowers around it. You do have to start to change your environment. Mm. Well, so. 
Do you have any tips as to, okay, say for example, someone goes, uh, explores their sobriety, they're all about getting sober, but then they get, you know, put right back into the same soil, same environment, and but they really want to change it. What what kind of tips or what, what could one do to really change the environment? Um, definitely keeping structured is is a big thing. So for anybody who's doing the impatient thing, definitely do outpatient afterwards. You need a gradual decline of treatment. So you go from 24 hours of treatment if you're an impatient all the way down to, you know, nothing at least do a couple hours a day go to a place like the recovery bank downtown um, go to a meeting find the sponsor but then also i think it's about changing your friend group because we're very similar to, to our friends and we tend to do things that our friends do so through that finding at least a couple of new people just to get the ball rolling mm. now to kind of shift topics here uh, what, what kind of observations have you had as far as the mental health of not only the nation, but maybe even the world as far as this coronavirus pandemic goes? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a heavy topic right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely the uh, elephant in the room, without a doubt, as far as it, all of America. You know, all this uh, uncertainty and, you know, panic almost. Because mm -hmm. what I've been finding is it's very difficult to find, like, facts out there on things. Whether it's like, you know, some people are saying China's withholding, you know, numbers. Some people are saying, like, oh, the U.S. is withholding numbers. Uh, some people are saying, oh, there's not enough coronavirus tests. But, but if there's not enough tests, then how can we have correct numbers of coronavirus diagnosis? You know, so it's... Right. It's, it's ridiculous. So um, in this age of uncertainty, what um, how would you suggest individuals kind of like cope with and accept the situation instead of just running around panicking, buying all the toilet paper out there? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I talked about that on my podcast that this is some kind of need for security in a very insecure spot right now. Yeah. So, you know, I think with acceptance, it's just kind of finding... I guess our little bit of control in this whole thing there there's a lot of there's a lot to unpack with this thing psychologically but one thing that i want to turn to and this is more on the positive end is the amount of altruism that's going on right now people might be like you know yes there are the covidiots out there <laughs> Who are spreading it and <laughs> i love that oh I my like god <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> so there's all there's these people who keep spreading it and i mean that's a whole psychological thing in itself the fact that there's this denial that it's even happening still among people but um on the other end there there is the altruism that even though i may not be directly affected by it i don't want my family to be affected by it i don't want to be spreading things i don't want to be that link in the social connection so i i think being able to give ourselves credit for that that uh, it, you know me being home is doing a good thing or me working as somebody who is essential right now is a good thing or even just going back to you know what you guys are probably doing just as I am finding some new hobbies that, that could make us feel a sense of meaning in this doing some you know a call like this today is perfect you're still socially connecting and making the best of it mm -hmm. so I 
kind of creating this new reality and and faking it till we make it uh, that's probably the best way we could adjust and and work through the acceptance mm-hmm. Sad, yeah it's like back to center back to what's actually important no more distractions with society and going out and um, everything shut down this is like the hibernation this is the meditation on the societal level everyone is stuck with themselves everyone has to reflect and um yeah i I think it's like you said it's about finding that security that a, a new secure base from which people could build their lives and the altruism is playing a huge role um i'm i mean that's taken charge of my life um i'm not really concerned for um myself as much as i am for my family and elderly people so it's more that i'm kind of staying home for them i don't really mind if i get it i I know i could probably handle it um but yeah the altruism i I think we'll make it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah very interesting again back to facebook I, i saw this infographic on there where it was like a pie chart and it was like the most uh, fears around the coronavirus and it was all charted out I, I again i don't know where they got this information or whatever but it was interesting to see their perspectives so i want to say uh, a third of it well less than a third of it was or, or you know what a li- like let's say a little bit more than a fourth of the pie chart was they're afraid for themselves again mm-hmm. and then uh, i want to say four or six maybe um, uh, much more than a fourth would be c- concern about a fam- their family and others and the public. But then the majority of it was like concern about the economy. It's just fascinating, oh, yeah. fascinating yeah. to me because um, uh, like in the news, I saw Trump, he was saying how um, he was speculating on, you know, reopening the entire country, just opening it back up, you know, as opposed to letting, closing it all, keeping everyone quarantined, and then letting the virus die off on its own. He was just like, I, I got the impression, I got the feeling that he was like, open everything back up, let everyone get infected, let the economy regain its like strength, and then the the ones that die will die, you know. But and it's like, the fact that people have this mindset where it's like money the economy is more important than public health it's just it's unbelievable and it's coming out more now than ever before you know especially with this pandemic yeah in a way though the economy and public health are actually connected quite intimately um you know if people if the economy is bad then people can't get necessary medical supplies and uh, medicines and foods and water but you know if people's health is bad then the economy is going to be bad um, oh. so I, I mean to my mind what I see happening right now is a tipping point for the economy that we live in I mean it, how much more could it take before it just collapses I mean can it even sustain the impact of this and if the borders are opened how many more people are going to get or if everything is open back up for business how many more people are going to get ill and then die and businesses just fall apart from it um so i think that it's all in the spirit of nature and god saying it's time to 
it's time to stop and pause as a society and as a world and you know find the core values once again with no distraction and then rebuild society and our life from those uh, core values with the altruism and the cooperation and I think um, new payment systems bartering and trade is going to play a huge role in it and also traditional medicine and healing like yeah yeah that's where we stand I think yeah it's definitely waking people up as to our reliance on the government and the economy yeah a lot like we've definitely strayed away from the whole like farmer mentality and self-sustainability where it's like especially in new york city like you just take the subway wherever you got to go you know you go to the grocery store you go to the the local corner store for whatever you need quick convenience you know and it's just it's a wake-up call call like i can't even i tell you how many conversations i had with uh, friends talking about like hey so um you want to start a garden this spring? You know, like that's right. definitely yeah. a conversation. <laughs> I might want to start on one that. now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just uh, looking at sustainability as uh, a new part of life almost. Like what, like what projects can I do to, you know, make food for myself? You know, like a while back I tried doing like a hydroponic system, just growing um, like Thai basil, some oregano, that kind of stuff. And it was, it was great project and so recently i've been diving into like growing little test kits of like mushrooms and stuff i got some lion's mane growing got some uh oyster mushrooms though the oyster mushrooms have a little difficulty with about a a little beginner kit on amazon well i don't know it's not really working out too good but the (laughs) lion's mane i'm feeling hopeful for and uh yeah it's just it's interesting to see the the mental health of a post-corona world. Like, we're definitely shifting our perspective, seeing things from a new light, whether it's, like, from an economic standpoint, a self-sustainable standpoint. Because I know, like, me and all my vendor friends who partially or fully rely on vending around the United States for an income like all the events got canceled so like what what do we do now you know it's just yeah fascinating what are your thoughts on a post-corona mental health of the world kind of standpoint well uh what Josh and I were talking about before we started up was um with this whole thing I I think it may be a little bit like before and after 9-11 in a way yeah that there's like this there there's a collective traumatic experience that we have all gone through and we're all going to have our own defenses up some people are still going to be in that denial kind of thing but you know the rest of us uh, there's going to be now uncertainty we're going to think twice about things we never thought about before like Going to a concert when I was, you know, looking to buy tickets to a concert in a few months, I was not thinking about this. My brother and I had tickets to a 76ers game. Never crossed my mind that even if I was a little bit sick, oh, let's go anyway. What would be the problem with that? Um, now we're going to be thinking more about public health. It's not like Corona is going to disappear in two months. Like, let's be honest, this thing will still be spreading. Um, and I think that just that thought, I mean, it makes me a little queasy that we're going to have to be living with this for for quite some time, whether or not we decide to go back to work next week or whether, uh, you know, this is going to be a few-month process of gradually reintegrating our lives. So I think it's kind of 
dealing with uncertainty on that day-to-day basis is is going to be it's going to become the norm yeah well said um it's it's um I've noticed that in times of desperation and in times of turmoil and chaos, um, people join together. And I believe that I, I see a future where people reconnect with the sustainable, local, um, independent mentality of like producing some of your own goods and foods and being self-reliant while also balancing that with perhaps a new system of trade and bartering with uh, cryptocurrencies and um, local markets, uh, stuff like that popping up. Um, And I also think that it's, like you said, just bringing our attention back to one of the most important things in life is our health, not only for ourselves, but as a world. I mean, this is worldwide. Uh, the entire planet, humans all over the world are affected by this. So it's it's like it's bringing everyone out of their individual world, thinking of the collective, and then also bringing that back into their individual world and saying, okay, what do I need to make it through this? What what should I do for myself and my family? And then on the world level like we gotta we gotta rethink this the way we've been doing it not working so pause reflect rebuild here we go yeah and it's really interesting seeing uh again what did you call them corona idiots or something what was the term idiots covid (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah 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 so it's really interesting seeing these like covid idiots where like like because we're all local like local to the scranton area generally and uh, yeah, yeah, have you seen in, was it like Hanover, like Wilkes-Barre area, the woman coughing in a Garrity's all over the vegetables? Mm-hmm. Uh, Un- unbelievable. Uh, just unbelievable. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think she had it, but just that act of just, you know, just taking it not as serious as it is, is just, uh, it's, it's appalling. It's, it's unfortunate. Here's something I want to throw into that I, I've kind of thought of and... Um, you know, because we are focusing on, on so much of the negative impacts, which they're, they're, they're going to be there. We, we mm-hmm. can't deny that. Um, but I think this also helps us recognize how deeply connected we are to one another. Um, you know, the six degrees of separation that we're only six people or like five or six mutual friends away from anybody in the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that a whole idea is becoming very true. That's like, wait, I can not only impact my family and my friends, but I can impact, like if I could uh, impact somebody with this coronavirus miles away, then what makes me think that I can't impact somebody with kindness or and I can't impact somebody with my belief system or my way of thinking? And I think this is where we start to build closer together that yes, a germ could spread to hundreds of thousands of people with only about two or three connections. What about good, you know, bright ideas? What about, you know, content like we're creating right now? Why can't that be part of the equation? And let's push this a little bit more um, to help one another. So maybe a more positive social uh, networking kind of kind of aspect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great thought. 
Yeah, especially with all the the negativity and all the good news, bad news. There's so much content more now than ever. It's like, where where do we choose to focus on? You know, do we choose to, you know, uh, uh, hurt the hurt the social spectrum, or do we want to help the social spectrum? As we uh, as we wrap up the interview, is there anything else that you want to talk on or mention that we didn't speak about? Yeah. Uh, so. Um, for every for every threat or enemy or danger, there's a, a there's an opportunity to overcome that danger by learning from it, learning how to overcome it and grow from it and integrate it into the future. And I think that's happening now as a society. And I think um, it's nothing new in a way, like. Maybe for our generation, we've never faced something of this severity, of this um, scale. But, I mean, through our human history, there's been plagues, there's been dangers, invasions, um, all types of wars and battles. And through each battle, and through each war, and through each danger or plague, in a way, it actually breaks us down to strengthen us and rebuild us as a whole. Um, I think 80% of our DNA, something like that, is made up of like viruses and bacteria. And after all, at the end of the day, we these human bodies are just a huge network of different viruses and bacteria and fung fungi living together and creating this system. Um, so, you know, another another invader another virus for us to integrate and it's all part of nature i mean there's no escaping viruses or bacteria every breath we take has millions i mean in a teaspoon of seawater i think there's one million viruses so yeah wow. <laughs> it's just the integration and recycling and for every struggle there's a breakdown and then a restructuring and a strengthening and a growth so mm. here's to springtime for the world I mean we're all growing yep. through this that we are yeah yeah even for me personally it's uh yeah definitely the um, the pinch on the economy has allowed me to catch up on like past orders as well as uh, do a lot of introspection and uh, yeah, just growth and building as well. As I like continue to grow out uh, restinggrounds.org, and yeah, even with this show and you know new projects in the future, definitely a good time to really focus on uh, one's own potential to grow, without a doubt. I agree with that too, and I'm honored you guys had me on here today. Um, you know, it's. It's good to talk about all this stuff and to get myself out there. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a time of growth for me too. Um, so I want to plug my my Facebook, my YouTube, Spotify, Mr. Ross checking in. Um, I'm Mr. Ross. <laughs> my hero is Mr. Rogers, and so I'm like I want to go with the Mr. Ross thing and and checking in just like a counselor would at, mm -hmm. at a session. So um, and my my. Uh, podcast is about combining these personal experiences I have, whether they be in the counseling world and in, you know, my own life and tying everything into just simplify everything that's going on. 
So that's that's my plug. So please follow me on there, and I'm, I'm hoping to be releasing content for a while. Awesome, awesome. And uh, if people want to reach out to you directly, do you have a email or anything like that they could send something to? Sure. So the best way would be through the Mr. Ross checking in Facebook page. Probably check that the most, or mm-hmm. even a direct message on YouTube. Those would be the two best ways. Great. Well, thank you so much for stopping by, and uh, yeah, look forward to uh, more content that you make. And yeah, just thank you for you know trying to help others, you know, find themselves and better themselves. For that, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for watching Catacomb Social Club. For updates, new episodes, subscribe real quick right now at catacombsocialclub.com. Remember that we all must die one day, so talk to your loved ones ASAP about your post-life plans for your body. Now learn more about creative and beneficial post-life plans at restingground.org. I am Jeremy, signing off. Thank you and memento mori.